Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits. Let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. I'm all for the power of optimism, but sometimes you just have to get real. <laughs> Wait a minute. What did I just say? Optimism is real, but also is the troubles and complications of life. And in this era, I especially see a ton of anxiety and worry and threat. And to help us walk through this the authentic era of our lives, and the complications of ill health, aging, difficulties within our families, the list can go on, political concerns, uh, is Dr. Bernie Siegel, who's not allergic to the realities of life and understands optimism and way beyond that. So, Dr. Bernie Siegel, welcome so much to the show again. I thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? Thank you. I mean, the thing, you know, use the word optimism. The thing that I deal with so much is the word hope. And what was interesting uh, to me years ago when I began to help cancer patients, because, you know, my feeling was th- there were certain people um, who didn't die when they were supposed to. And when mm-hmm. I would say, how come you didn't die? They all had stories. So you learn from them about not dying, (laughs) you know, based on statistics. And I began to share this with people because so often it had to do with what had happened in their life, what made them vulnerable to illness and things of this sort. And then other doctors would say to me, you're blaming your patients. I said, what are you talking about? You're asking them what's going on in their life. I said, yeah, that can make them vulnerable. I've learned Learned it in my life and my wife's life, um, you know, when mm-hmm. you're under stress. And the other was, you're giving false hope. I, it's like, what is false hope? That That's an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't have false hope. I always say, if you buy a lottery ticket, you know, somebody could say to you, why are you wasting your money? But some people win. So it, it's not being afraid to give it a chance, give it a shot, you know, not worrying, oh, I'm a failure if I don't get well, if I don't exceed expectations. And uh, so I learned that there are certain qualities. The way I put it is if I'm a coach uh, of a team, there are people who show up for practice regularly and even stay a little longer, and they become the stars. And the ones who don't want to show up or don't want to put in extra time don't do as well or afraid, you know, I'll do it wrong. My family always told me I was a failure and I embarrassed them, so I'm not going to try anything else. And uh, that's the sad part because I know that you do, um, you know, work with children too and families. And to me, I always say the biggest public health issue on the planet is parenting, that if all our kids grew up with love, that they would take care of themselves and we wouldn't have to worry about giving them instructions or labeling things because they would know damn well what was good for them and what isn't. And I began to see that too over the years. Um, Those who were abused, unloved, oh, some of the horrible stories I've heard from people Um, and and, uh, what it did to them, Uh, uh, you know, whether it's addictions or just self-destruction. Uh, it's just so sad. And I also found that reparenting, I mean, that sort of came incidentally. I didn't realize I was doing it as a doctor who, because the opposite of love is rejection, abuse, indifference. And I would always give these people return appointments because they were so used to being rejected by everybody. There's no point in you coming back. You Mm -hmm. never follow instructions. You don't take your medicine. I would always say, I'll see you next week or I'll see you in two weeks. And I watched them after a few months begin to realize he seems to care about me. (laughs) He keeps telling me to come back. So maybe I'm worth something. And then they'd begin to change. 
And the classic statement that really educated me was a suicidal teenager who said to me one day, you're my CD. I said, what the heck are you talking about? She said, you're my chosen Mm -hmm. dad. And boy, I I have never stopped adopting people since. And there are literally people alive today because I said to them, look, I'll be your chosen dad. I love you. You're a child of God. You know, why do you want to kill yourself? Um, And they began to make those changes. And then the gifts come back to me from them. Uh, Because I always say, like, I already got a Father's Day card from one of my chosen children. And it's still a couple of weeks away. (laughs) But I know, you know, it's that love. She wants to be first on the list, right? (laughs) Oh, Bernie, so then who is your chosen dad? Who is my chosen? Well, I had good good parents uh, and grandparents. I didn't need other people to uh, save Mm. me. You know, again, and I, I found that was a problem for me because other kids didn't talk to me about the truth. What I mean by that is if I say, gee, what happened to you last night? You know, he's all black and blue. Oh, I fell off my bike. Yeah, what I learned was he didn't fall off his bike. His father beat him up. But because I never would experience something like that from my parents, I assumed they were telling me the truth. And so I didn't realize the pain that the other kids are in. And one thing I began to learn as I, as an adult and a physician talking to high school students and others, I would give them this homework assignment. Tonight, you're to write a suicide note, why you should commit suicide. And then you're to write a love note, why you're worth loving. And I said, you don't have to put your name on them. Just bring them back in tomorrow and put them on the desk. And that's when the kids were shocked because... And any high school student will tell you this. The suicide pile is going to be three to five times higher than the love pile. And when they saw that, they realized, I'm not the only one in the class who feels like that. And then the therapy started. And one school, I mean, a lot of times the teachers will say to me, now they'll go home and commit suicide. What is wrong with you? What is... The suicide rate went down when the schools started using that as a regular part of a program. Wow. And they realized, you know, that then therapy began to happen in class because they talked to each other. And uh, mm-hmm. it made such a difference. And as I say, I grew up with what I call mottos to live by. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. I've had people in my workshop say, you didn't ask me what mottos were dying by. I mean, this is a quote from a woman. <laughs> My mother's words were eating away at me and maybe gave me cancer. She told me I was a failure. I always embarrassed her, and she only dressed me in dark clothes so nobody would notice me. I grew up with, hey, Ma, I I have to make a decision today. I don't know what to do. Do what makes you happy. Ma, don't you want to help me? Do what makes you happy. So I thought, well, my mother's no help. I have to go figure out what makes me happy. (laughs) Ma, I had a horrible day at school today. Everything went wrong. God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. Ma, are you nuts? God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. I mean, I did not have a high opinion of my mother when I was a kid. Because, you know, I'm looking for help. I had a terrible day at school. Why don't you give me a hug, say, you know, something. Um... But no, God is redirecting you. And I literally used to go to my bedroom, sit on the bed and say, God, my mother's no help. (laughs) And I would talk to God. (laughs) And my father, and the reason I went to the bedroom, I didn't want anybody to think I was psychotic. You know, if they said, what are you doing? Talking to God? What? So my father's (laughs) father died when he was 12 of tuberculosis, leaving six kids and a wife with no money or anything. And... Yet, my father said, which impressed me one day, he said, material things are to make it a better world for everyone. Because he learned the importance, you know, things, that people needed them. Mm. 
And so he would lend money to people, give it to people to help them. And he told me that one day when I needed more help for tuition, go to college, go to medical school. I got married when I was in medical school, and I didn't have any money at all because I used to give him every present I got because I felt so guilty how he was so helpful. And um, I even, I mean, a humorous thought comes in because I told him, you know, about getting married and I needed to rent an apartment for myself and my wife. And so he said, sure, I'll pay the rent. And again, out of my guilt, we didn't pick the best apartment in the world. And when my mother came to visit, she said, why are you living here? I said, because dad is paying the rent, you know, and I would have felt guilty to take some fancy apartment somewhere. But again, he told me, he said, don't worry about asking. I can say no if I don't want to help you. So he helped me not live with guilt that if I needed help, I could say something. And he could say no. And uh, if you have time for one more humorous story. While I was in college, I asked him if he could get me a car so I could get home, you know, to see my future wife and things like that on weekends because we're about five hours away by car. And he said, he was sitting in the office writing me a letter saying, no, I'm not going to buy a car for you. When some... But he came into his office and said, oh, excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt. He said, no, it's okay, I'm just writing a letter to my son. Oh, what is it about? Oh, he wants to get a car in college. Oh, you're going to let him have it? No. Oh, he doesn't get good grades? No, he gets all A's. He's in trouble with drugs, alcohol? <laughs> no, no, he doesn't have any of those problems. And everything the guy asked, my father would say, no, no. And finally the guy said, then why can't he have a car? <laughs> and my father said he threw the letter out and sent me another letter saying, okay, you can have a car. And um, oh, wow. thank God that guy came into the office. But, you know, but <laughs> again, <laughs> yeah, my father taught me in one other lesson. See, I found his teaching was more powerful than criticism, than yelling at you. Um, hmm. One of our neighbors, a boy, had a toy um that I had wanted, and I was jealous that his parents got it for him. And we were playing in the yard, and I broke it. Um, And it was obvious to him that I did it purposely so he wouldn't have the toy. And his folks that evening told my parents what I had done. And my parents didn't say a word. But the next day, my father came home with that toy in the box, And he handed it to me and then walked into the house. And I can tell you, I never forget that because I was out in the front yard. I thought my head was going to explode because I knew that I could keep it. He didn't say, give it to the neighbor, return this. He just walked in the house. But that pressure was so incredible. Of course, I got up, walked over the neighbors and gave it to him. Um, But that's the kind of man he was. you know, he was so clever in terms of how to exert that pressure and get you to do the right thing, um, you know, versus punishing and screaming and yelling. And I don't think he ever raised his voice because he, he had had so much trouble in his childhood that uh, he cared about every child and uh, was good with them. Huh. You know, but there's a, a, there's two sides to that story. And the other side is that you, as a child, could hear the underlying messages of his of his quiet, mm. <laughs> power sermons. And what inside of you existed as a soul that you feel like you walked into this planet with? What do you think about yeah. that question? Who were you? Oh no, I you came here. I felt it, yeah, very much that because even why I became a doctor. That's not really looked into when you enter, well, most professions. You know, you may get a form to fill out that says, why do you want to be whatever it is? And most of the answers are intellectual. Um, A lot of kids write, I'm fascinated by the human body. But people come in it, you know. But I cared about people. I wanted to be a doctor for healthy reasons. I wanted to help people. And that's what got me into trouble. Because you suddenly realize you can't cure everything. 
You can't fix everything. You can't make everything go away. And then you have spiritual questions. You know, if I were God, why would I do this to people? Why would I give kids cancer, you know, and all kinds of malformations? Because I did a lot of children's surgery. And it just was so Mm -hmm. painful to see these kids having to go through so much. But I learned from the kids. I have to say, the kids were always my teachers. If they were loved, they got through it all. I can remember one day making rounds, and I walked into my patient's room. It was a little child with cancer. And the child and the parents were in the crib sleeping together. And I I Mm. thought this is the most loving feeling and picture Mm. I could ever imagine. And so I left them a note saying, you have a lucky child. And then I'm walking down the hall and I think, hey, stupid, the kid is dying of cancer and you left that note. So I ran back to grab it. And the parents had awakened by then. And I said, look, I'm sorry, Uh you know, the the note. And they said, we understand what you're talking about. Uh You're right. Our child is a fortunate child. He has the love. And, yeah, and that taught me a lot, too. And the kids also are in the moment. You know, when I'm worrying about Mm -hmm. the future, what's going to happen to you, all the surgery. Um, As one of our kids said to me when he had a bone tumor, Dad, can I talk to you for a minute? This is a seven-year-old. I said, what is it? You're worrying about next year. We're trying to have a nice day. Can we please go out in the yard and play? We have five kids. And, you know, I was basically saying to them, your brother's going to lose his leg. He may be dead in a year. Go to your room and be depressed. I mean, that sounds stupid, but that was the message they were getting from me. And and here is this seven-year-old saying, can we go outside and play? And stop worrying about next year and have a nice day. And I may add, we were very lucky. He had a rare type tumor, um, so it wasn't malignant. And uh, he was fine after surgery. But, you know, you you learn from the kids. You learn from your patients. And that's, well, here's another line for every professional. Are you criticized by patients, family, and coworkers? Now, when I say, if you said, oh, I fix roofs, okay, are you criticized by the homeowner, your family, and your co-workers? And the best people say, yeah, why are you asking? Because that's how I've learned to find the best person. And I say this to people all the time. If you want a good doctor, make sure you ask, are you criticized by patients, family, and nurses? And all the really good ones say, yeah. Now, why do they say, yeah? Because the nurses, the family, their patients know they're listening. And so they tell them if if something is done wrong or upsets them or bothers them, then they say something. And you say, oh, I'm sorry, and, and you learn from it. And literally, I asked one of the nurses at Yale one day, am I the worst doctor in the hospital? She said, what are you talking about? I said, you're always telling me, you know, how to do something better, what I'm doing wrong, what... And she said, yeah, you listen, so we talk to you. If the other doctors make excuses, we stop talking to them. And, boy, that taught me a lot. And I think we all need to learn from, again, what I call our life coaches, everybody in the family who can uh, do that. And they're not telling you you're a terrible person. They're telling you there's a better way to do things. I mean, one couple I know where the husband had cancer, uh, they had a pin and I used to give that kind of pin to a lot of people. It was the word attitude made into a pin. And he wore it on his lapel. <clears throat> and he said, and when he came up to me with his wife, he said, yeah, if I don't behave the way I should be behaving, my wife comes over, grabs the pin and says, honey, straighten out your attitude. So again, she's <laughs> helping him, but not saying, hey, dumbbell. You know, what are you doing? And and that's something we all need to do with each other. Have Yeah, in, as a matter of fact, at home, I always remember the kids saying, Dad, you're not in the operating room now. In other words, if I became in charge and oppressive for them, they would say, Dad, you're not in the operating room now. So they had, wow. you know, 
their ability to speak up and uh, make decisions too, not me telling everybody what to do. Hmm. And it what works. clarity. How, how nice is that? Yeah, how nice is that? I have, I have a question for you then, because you know, you're talking about how people teach us with their criticisms if we're willing to learn, and, mm-hmm. and then their criticisms be converted into lessons of love because they see things we can't. I think that there's another set of lessons that are harder for people to hear because of our allergy to emotions. I think that depression, guilt, embarrassment, shame, sadness, worry, anxiety can both be vexing and horrible conditions that overwhelm us, but they can also be instruction. They can be mm-hmm. messages that, that that wake us up. It's hard to listen because you have to listen to your soul's angst. Uh, as opposed right. to medicating it or, or drugging it or fooding it or or pretending. What, what do you think of that idea? Oh, I agree with you 100%. I mean, the curse can become a blessing. Charcoal under pressure can become a diamond. Joseph Campbell put it this way. He said, when you're going through hell, ask yourself, what am I to learn from this experience? And I think that mm-hmm. the people who are willing to learn, then it changes their whole experience. And and this is something I've learned. I don't know what got me started on it, but I would say to people, what are you experiencing? See, whether it's emotional, if you said depression, I said, that's your diagnosis. What does it feel like to be depressed? What are you experiencing? Cancer. No, that's your diagnosis. What does it feel like to have cancer? And what I found was the words that came out of people, the negative words, I would always say, what else in your life fits that? And boy, some of their eyes would pop open because they knew what needed to be changed in their life in order to help with their emotional or physical problem. So one lady who was in severe pain due to recurrent migraine headaches and was going to be admitted to the hospital said it's pressure, the pain. The pressure in her life was her marriage. Literally 15 minutes later, the nurse came over to me, she said, her headache's gone. She's gone home to work on her marriage. And a person who said failure about cancer, well, my body failed. I said, no. How does failure fit your life? Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. And that was a oh, woman wow. who was so afraid of relationships. <laughs> and oh, She was sent to me by a plastic surgeon who had removed a malignant melanoma. And he said, she keeps screaming at me how ugly I made her. And unless she's, you know, in a bathing suit, you don't even know she's had an operation. And so I said to her, what are you experiencing? And then the word failure came out. And that changed her life. Now, you know, because she suddenly woke up and started a new direction, you know, caring about herself and her life and learning new things. So... When people come up with positive words, because I will say the people with life-threatening conditions who say, yeah, it's a wake-up call, it's a blessing, it's a new beginning, and they don't die on schedule. I mean, I have a lot of that are really funny stories about people who felt close to death and uh, accepted that statement from their doctors and then went to enjoy the short time left. And didn't die. I'm laughing because, mm-hmm. you know, when you call up a family and say, why wasn't I invited to the funeral? And the man I thought was dead answered the phone. He said, oh, it's so beautiful here, I forgot to die. Uh, he had moved from Connecticut <laughs> to Colorado to be in the mountains. And I never forget that mm-hmm. crazy call. A year later, you know, after he had left, I was calling to criticize the family for ignoring my desire to come to his funeral, you know, to honor him and respect him. And he answers the phone. So, yeah, there are many of these. And that's why I say there's always a story. Um, It's not a coincidence. And I find that the authors um, writing poetry, songs, novels, they watch the world and then they write about it. And they say the same things that I see. And it confirms it for me. In Solzhenitsyn's book, Cancer Ward, one of the men <clears throat> comes into the ward with a book and says, oh, look, I found this in the library in the hospital. It says there are cases of self-induced healing. 
Now, that blew my mind because you never hear that word from a doctor or a medical school. You hear about spontaneous Mm -hmm. remissions. But again, if it's spontaneous, then the patient had nothing to do with it. They were just plain lucky. But when you use the word self-induced, then you have something to learn from that patient. And the symbolism that Solzhenitsyn used was a rainbow-colored butterfly fluttering out of the book. And boy, when I read that, mm-hmm. I said, yeah, you know. Thank you mm-hmm. for teaching me. The butterfly is a symbol of transformation, and the rainbow is a symbol of order. Every, And I mean this literally. Every color has an emotional meaning to it. So you put everything in order, then you really have created a different life and your body gets the message. And that's what people have to realize. Um, A graduate student years ago gave a woman and a man who were actors two scripts and he drew their blood while they were acting. The comedy showed that their immune function increased and their cortisol stress hormone levels went decreased. When they were in the tragedy where the man was a murderer of her husband and they meet, their immune function went down and stress hormone levels went up. And what impressed me was this is only acting. But that's something people yeah. need to understand. That, And I mean this literally. If somebody's on Broadway in a tragedy, they're more likely to drop out with the flu in the middle of the winter than somebody in a Mel Brooks you know, comedy show. Um, who are laughing through the whole show. And in a study of cancer patients, uh, done in one of the Scandinavian countries, they were told to laugh for no apparent reason every three or four hours, all day long. And the control group was told, hey, if something funny comes, laugh, but don't laugh for no reason. Guess who had better survival statistics? Yes, the people who Uh laugh for no reason all through the day. And I always say to people, just do it, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Because I I test myself, you know, and you start laughing for no reason. It's hard as hell to stop. I mean, you just feel better. You keep chuckling, and uh, it feels good. And that and gratitude. When When you work at what am I grateful for versus what's wrong today? What do I need to fix? What's happening? What am I grateful for? I was impressed by how much better I felt if every morning I gave myself a difficult job of thinking about things I'm grateful for. When I say difficult, I mean it was had a format where every day of the month, like you have the letter A on the first day of the month. See, yes, yeah, starting tomorrow, think of three things you're grateful for with the letter A, to begin with the letter A. And then you work through the 26 letters of the alphabet. And I always say, then I give you a few days off. But then the next month, you can't repeat the things you said last month. So if you said, I'm grateful for apples and attitude and Allegheny, uh, it doesn't matter what it is, you know, (laughs) that you come up with four things, but the next month you can't repeat them. And what I loved about that was, I began to realize that after a few months, I'm working like hell to figure out what I'm grateful for that begins with the letter A. But think about that. See, now my mind is filled with what else am I grateful for versus what else is going wrong in my life. And, uh, yeah, it takes work to keep doing all these things. You know, it's easy for me to talk about them and preach them. But every morning when you walk out of the house... um, Living them, it, it takes discipline. You have to care about yourself and others and uh, work at it. So, yeah, it, it's work, but you get a gift from doing the work. I do a lot of uh, research on, on brain entrainment and the power of practicing one way of thinking versus practicing another way of thinking. I'm now talking to people about, are you practicing your depression? Are you Mm -hmm. practicing your trauma? Uh, And and I I would like to pose to you a question like that because I do believe sometimes it's important for people to 
feel at ease with being depressed and anxious and traumatized. I know this sounds really funny, but to feel at ease with it so that you can have a relationship where you're not fighting it off or trying to run away from it as if it's some evil monster that's pursuing you, as if you always have to live in terror of how it can devastate your life or cause illness. Yeah, yeah, the what, what I your words oh, ring up for me. What happens in dreams? You know, when some horrible monster, something threatens you. And I always remember reading a story where a man enters a cave, and there's this beautiful diamond. But as he goes to pick it up, this big monster, and he's so frightened, he runs out of the cave. And he, he is so upset with himself for not having the courage because what it would have meant to his family to have this fortune and everything. So when he's an old man, he goes back to the cave and he walks in and he sees the diamond is still there. And he walks towards it and picks it up. And this little lizard comes over and growls at him. Now, what's different is him. It's no longer this big monster that frightens him because life has taught him an awful lot. So he can pick up this treasure and bring it home now. And I think that's what we all have to look at. What is it that's frightening us? You know, it's something we're creating. If we're worrying about, well, I used to say this to actors all the time when they came to my office and had a serious illness. You get on the stage, you perform, and nobody applauds. How do you feel? And some would say, horrible. And others would say, hey, I, I Gave it my best shot. If I don't like it, okay. I'd say to the first ones, get off the stage until you get your health straightened out. And the others, fine, go ahead and keep performing. Because they weren't putting themselves at risk every night. And uh, Mm. uh, my wife has had many decades of multiple sclerosis. And, you know, because of how it has affected her, there are a lot of times what I get from her is I can't, I can't, I can't. (laughs) But I think that's Mm. like self-hypnosis, if you know what I mean. I can't. Uh When there are many things she can do, even though she doesn't want to do them, so I can't is a better answer, and then maybe I'll leave her alone. Mm. But, you know, you have to have that desire and intention that changes you Mm -hmm. and the things around you. When you say, I can, I will, um, you change yourself. And you change your chemistry. That's what people have to keep realizing. Your emotions create internal chemistry. Monday morning, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses. And they always say, mm-hmm. you know, if you canceled Mondays, Tuesday would be a bad day. Um, you can't. It, it's how you feel when you get up. I have to go to work. And oh, I, yeah. So your body does your favor. You know. We'll have a heart attack. You can go to the hospital and relax. You don't have to go to work anymore. Um, But when you get up and it's your opportunity to contribute some love to the world, it makes such a difference to you and your body and how it feels and what it keeps doing for you. I mean, most, you know, when I mentioned about children and health, you go into assisted living facilities and you say, did your parents love you? And everybody says, yeah, what's wrong with you? What kind of stupid question is that? And these are people in their 80s, 90s, and even 100. Um, But if you go into a high school and say that your parents love you, you get the opposite answer. And in one study, 70% of high school students contemplated suicide. But if you talk to 80 and 90-year-olds, no, they're not thinking of suicide. And they need to be therapists for the kids in high school. I'm serious when I say that, mm-hmm. boy. It would be good to bring them in and, and teach the kids and tell them you love them. And that's why you came and what a mm-hmm. difference it makes. So I think all all the professionals who see people, you know, be it uh, teachers, doctors, it doesn't matter what your profession is. If you're dealing with people, let the people know you care about them. And that changes their view of themselves and their health. Have you read uh, Norman Doidge's book, The Brain's The Brain's Way of Healing, or his other book, The Brain That Changes Itself? Because he he talks about the power of uh, overcoming pain or hot, uh, Parkinson's disease or et cetera, et, yeah. et cetera, and that they've actually 
able to trace the brain rewires itself as the person practices what it's trying to wire in, like I don't feel any pain, for example. Yeah, yeah. The I mean, what I began to realize, too, that was interesting is that when patients are anesthetized, they still hear you. They're in similar to a trance state. And so I started years ago talking to patients under anesthesia, playing music for them in the operating room, um, creating a healing environment and giving them positive messages. You know, you'll wake up comfortable, thirsty, hungry. And it was amazing. And I may add, when I was doing it back in the 70s, people thought, what are you, nuts? They're anesthetized. They can't hear you. They can't respond. (laughs) And then they could see the difference in the patients, and it changed everybody. Mm -hmm. So instead of being nuts, it became hospital policy. And, um, you know, I can't help but tell you some of the experiences because all these memories. I would walk in with, um, you know, a tape player back in the old days. And they said to me, you're an explosion hazard. You can't plug in an electric appliance. We have gases here that can explode. But after a week or two of playing music, nobody complained about the explosion hazard anymore because everybody felt yeah. better. And the patients felt better, far less pain, which shocked the nurses, you know, that somebody wakes up after major surgery and says, Jim, I'm a little sore, but I'm okay. I don't need any pain, you know, any morphine or things like that. Um, and it impressed everybody. So then I always said that nobody's against success. So then it became something everybody imitated and did with people. And... Um, we can't separate mind and body. But again, doctors are trained. This is a quote from someplace. I don't remember where. Doctors are trained to treat the result and not the cause. You see? Right. So you go and, well, I don't make things up. This is an ad in New England Journal of Medicine from Sandoz Pharmaceutical Company years ago. I'm depressed, unable to cope. I went to see my physician. He prescribed an antidepressant. I feel better now. I wrote to the journal and the company, and I said, excuse me, would you put in one more line that says, sit down, tell me what's going on in your life before you say, here's a pill? I said, if I've had a tragedy in my life and I'm depressed, don't you think the doctor ought to ask me what I'm going through versus here's your pill? And so they canceled the ad. But that, to me, is the saddest part. Wow, they canceled the ad. Yeah. Yeah, rather than put in another Bernie, line. You, yeah. When are you going to write your uh, your medical training book? I mean, you have all these other books, but don't, don't these physicians need to hear from a physician about about all of this in a technical sort of way, in a medical sort of way? When, you, yeah. when are you going to embark on? But that? it's hard <laughs> to get. It's hard to get through to the administration. The the students are more likely to invite you. Let me give you two examples. I still have a letter that I finally was able to scan and put in my computer written when I graduated from medical school and started training as a physician. And I wrote to the dean, and that's what the letter is about. And it said, basically, you taught me how to treat disease, but you didn't teach me how to take care of people, either myself or my patients. It took over 50 years to get an answer from a dean. Because every time they changed the dean at my medical school, I sent the same letter back. And it took 50 years for one of them to finally say, yeah, I got your letter. But that's what upset me. I mean, if the dean had written to me and (laughs) said, well, what upset me was that nobody even answered. You know, that if they had said, thank you for your opinion... That's all. I, I just want to know you read this, you know, that you didn't just throw it in the garbage can, but that you take it, you know, and think about it. But that's the sad part in medicine. And when you ask medical students, draw yourself working as a doctor. That blew my mind, too. Uh, this was a whole class at one of the, I think it was in, at the Virginia Medical School. Um, draw yourself working as a doctor. One student handed me a picture where there isn't a human being in it. And the instructions are, draw yourself working as a doctor. 
what you see is all medical equipment in the computer. Then the next drawing that everybody did except one other student was I'm sitting behind the desk with my diploma on the wall behind me, no other person in the picture, no patient. The last one, which I you know, felt so good about in terms of really being a doctor, is the, this young man is kneeling in front of a woman in a wheelchair with his arm around her, so he's, in a sense, become fused to her. The stethoscope is hanging on his neck, but he's not touching her with that. He's handing her a tissue. Now, that's being a doctor. See, he realizes if he helps someone, even with a tissue, he's being a doctor. He's helping her. He doesn't have to give her a pill or operate on her or listen to her heartbeat. He gives her a tissue. And that's the part that I've learned. Uh, And from a patient who said to me, I need to know how to live between office visits. Because she said, I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. And that's what redirected my career. Yeah. I I attended a workshop by Dr. Carl Simonton over the weekend. And when I came back to my office on Monday, one of my surgical partners said to me, you're gone. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're not the same person you were on Friday. And it's because I was at a workshop where I was sitting with all our patients. And they were the ones who became my teachers. And I may add, made me put my desk against the wall too, so that there's nothing between them and me when they'd come in to see me or talk to me. You know, I'm not separating myself. I'm vulnerable too. I could get sick too. So... I'm there to be with them. And, uh, yeah, damn right, that needs to be a part of medicine. But, again, it, it where it really needs to be researched is why do you want to be a doctor? You know, it's not about fascinated by the human body or I want to cure disease. See, that has nothing to do with people. They, No matter what they write, they have to be told, okay, now, let me explain to you. People are going to come into your office. And I don't care what profession it is, you know, whether you read about police who are violent and, and overreacting and killing people or people, you know, putting bombs in various places and killing others. That's all about their life, their own feelings of rejection, their unhealthy reasons for choosing a profession. And if that were looked into while they were in training, then they would be a lot healthier in their profession. I mean, it was always a joke in medical school that the people who said, you know, the students who said, oh, I'm going to be a psychiatrist were the kids with the most trouble. They were becoming psychiatrists to straighten out their own troubles. But then, you see, everybody who comes into your office gets treated for your problem. And that's that comes from a psychotherapist who said, when all your patients have the same diagnosis, it's your diagnosis. It's your problem, and you're just seeing it in everybody and treating it in everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, the ability, the power of uh, a doctor to be humane and loving and caring also has a tremendous impact on the recovery from surgery, the impact of medicine. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I mean, it, it's just compounded. It, uh, I remember that Larry Dossie once said, if, if Prayer yep. is proven to be healing. Then we are we practicing malpractice if we fail to pray for our clients, yep. and that was a, a potent statement in my mind. Yeah, in all my years of training, the only time the chief surgeon prayed before surgery was out at Children's mm-hmm. Hospital of Pittsburgh. His name was Dr. Keyswetter, and he had been a in the clergy before he became a doctor. And we were about to separate, um, you know, two assignment twins that were fused to each other, two kids. And he said, let us all stop and pray. And this was an operating room filled with people because we're going to have two children to work on. Um, And we all stood and prayed. And I thought, wow, in all the years I've been doing this, it's the first time 
somebody has ever said that. And I used to stand and pray over my patients, not out loud, but I would hold their hand and just mm-hmm. stand there in silence. And many of them said they knew, I knew you were praying for me. Um, they could feel wow. it. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, faith makes a big difference to what it, what it brings to people. I've had people, I always say there are two ways to prayer, of, of prayer. One is with complete faith. Um, an example is leaving your troubles to God. And the other was what I call argumentative, that you tell God what you want and give God, yeah. you know, hell, because you don't like what you're going through. And the reason I say that is I've seen those people have their incurable cancers disappear. These are people who went home to die. And one was a woman who came back two months later, and my partner was examining her and said, Bernie, come in here. You're interested in this stuff. I said, what is it? He said, her cancer's gone. I said, tell them what you did. Ah, you know. I said, I may know, but tell them. She said, I went home and I left my troubles to God. And I think the total peace that she achieved made a difference. And the other was a lady I got such a kick out of. Um, because when she got well, I said, well, what happened? What did, you know, what's your story? She said, oh, I got so fed up with being sick and the way I felt. I just sat down on my bed one night and I gave God hell. I can't take it anymore. I want to either be dead or you get me well. And she went on ranting and raving, <laughs> she said, at God. And she said, when I woke up the next day, I began to feel better and, and recovered. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, both techniques work. I like the faith now better than I do the argument because <laughs> at first that was my reaction, you know. Hey, God, why are you doing these things? Come on, straighten everything out. Don't, you know. But now it's to, it's to have faith. I always say God is consists of loving, intelligent, conscious energy and to have faith that all those things are available to you and you can use them to help you. You know, it's so interesting, the arguing format, though, because uh, one of my favorite uh, verses is Job 13, 15, where Job is like, oh, horrible circumstances. I would never want to be in his situation. And he says, I'm going to argue my case before God. I'm going to argue my case before God. And his friend says, how dare you argue with God? And it's like, do you really think God is so small that I can't have a real-life argument with God? And I think that the second way you mentioned about prayer is, is also reflective of that people often in front of medical doctors or in the face of their illness or depression become victims. And when you begin to argue with your depression or even argue with your, your medical doctor or your medical treatment in a way you're saying, I refuse to be a victim here. I'm going to participate right. with energetically in this. And, uh, and my participation is in the direction of cure and health and happiness. So yep. let's 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 yeah, wrestle I, here. Yeah, while, the while word patient. The word patient is derived oh, from yeah. its meaning from a submissive sufferer. And I always tell people, yeah, if you're oh, a well. good patient, you're not going to do well because you're mm-hmm. submitting to everybody else's statements and desires and everything else. And I'd mm-hmm. say you want to be what I call a respite. A, re- a responsible participant in your life and health, that you don't just, you know, do everything because the doctor said. It's not the doctor's body or the doctor's life. It's yours. And uh, you have mm-hmm. to keep your power, especially if you're hospitalized. Because, again, can save your life. You know, medical errors kill hundreds of thousands of people every year. Um, yeah. And why are the errors made? Because you're a room number, you're a disease, you're not a person. But if you're a character in the hospital, they don't make a mistake when they walk into your room. You know, they know it's that crazy guy or that one lady was called grandma. I mean, because she just stood out and was such a character in the hospital. So nobody's going to give grandma somebody else's treatment. And uh, you need to maintain your identity. And that's why I say there's survivor oh, yeah. behavior. You know, th- there's appropriate anger. People need to understand that. 
Because sometimes I'm told, well, you talk about love all the time and you're getting mad, you're yelling at me. I said, yeah, I don't like how you're treating me, <laughs> you know. So we'll call it righteous indignation, that if you're not treated with respect, you have a, um, an opportunity to speak up and a right to speak up. And it's not to say to the other person, you're a horrible person. It's no, I don't like how you're treating me. See, again, when I get back to doctors accepting criticism, I've had patients say to me, what's wrong? I said, what do you mean? The look on your face. Yeah, I'm thinking about how to help you. Think in the hallway and smile when you come in here. You see, so they taught me something. Um, Oh, and another, this was significant. Another man, I was about to discharge him from the hospital. He said, everybody who took care of me has gotten a bottle of liquor, but not you. I said, I'm not a big It's not a big thing for me, but why am I not getting one? Because you're always angry. I said, yeah, I don't like what happened to you. I don't like what I had to do to you. He said, yeah, but you took it out on me. That was a hell of a statement for me because I know my personality. I make noise. I get angry if I don't like what's going on. But he said, Mm -hmm. you took it out on me. And so, again, how did I respond? I'm sorry. See, I had learned something from him. And then he said, all right, you can have a bottle of liquor. (laughs) (laughs) But I found that, and I used to have a lot of students, one more little story, uh, would work with me for a month. Uh, They'd spend a month with me to learn all my techniques and teach them. And that was, I found, wonderful, too, because I'd come out of a patient's room and the student would turn to me and say, you weren't listening to the patient. You didn't answer her question. I said, then let's go back in. And I'd go back in the room and the patient would say, yeah, he's right. And I'd say, all right, tell me again. What did I miss? And I thought that was wonderful, that I had a third person observing. So if I didn't do a good job, he could say something or she, and then I'd go back in the room and respond to the patient. But you see, most of us don't have that observer, and we're not willing to listen to the criticism from the patient. But the criticism, that came from the Sufi poet Rumi, because you were talking a little bit about it before. Criticism polishes your mirror. In his days, mirrors were clear metal, and... um, So that saying went around, criticism polishes your mirror. And I think if you see it as making you a better person, with a more clear image, then you're learning something, and it's good for you. It's it's a beautiful metaphor because I always think of metal, which you just called a mirror, as a a kind of a form of armor or protection around a person that hides them from the onslaughts of other people, the unwanted onslaught. And here you're saying that turn that metal into something that can teach you by way of reflection and clarity. It's a beautiful way of converting that defensiveness into enlightenment. The key in all these things is something I learned from the ugly duckling and from a friend of mine Mm -hmm. who's an animal intuitive. Because when I would want to communicate with an animal, she would say to me, Bernie, Stop screaming your animal's name if you can't find it. Quiet your mind. You'll get into the animal's mind. You'll know where they are. Now, this is a friend of mine, Amelia Kincaid, just so people understand. Because I thought somebody who talked to animals was a little, uh, you know, psychotic. But anyway, she told me where to find lost animals in Connecticut while she was in California and Africa. And her descriptions were incredible in terms of accuracy. Because she said, I'm looking through the animal's eyes. But when I said, I would like to learn, she said, Bernie, you have to quiet your mind. And what I realized, the only way to see the truth, see, like if you're looking in the mirror, oh, you're ugly, look at that. Oh, yeah. The ugly duckling sat on the still pond, saw swans, looked at the water, wishing he was a swan, and then realized, I am a swan. But if he was cursing his mother, See, that rotten lady threw me out of the house. I'm not such a bad person. Why did you do this to me? He would never see his beauty. And Joseph yeah. Campbell used a similar story. He said, a tiger gives birth and then died afterwards. 
the goats the tiger was chasing come back and decide to raise the tiger as one of their own. And the tiger grows up thinking he's a goat. And it's a humorous story. But another tiger shows up and says, hey, stupid, you're not a goat. Come with me. And he takes him to a still pond and says, look, you're a tiger. But you see, if we don't quiet our minds, we never see the reflection because the turbulence Mm -hmm. stops it from happening. So quiet your mind if you want to see the truth. And the other way of, of seeing the truth in yourself and others is to be wounded, you know, to experience a wound. Um, I've had amazing things happen in a sense that were teaching for me uh, to be poked in the back by a lady who had a bandage over her eye and say, you're the only person in Stop and Chop who hasn't asked me what happened. I said, because I know what happened. I have an abusive spouse also. And then she looked at me like, what? Um, that's my crazy <laughs> sense of humor. Say. But everybody in Stop and Shop is, is talking to her because she has a visible wound. And yeah. that's something I now tell people. Go to work with a bandage over your eye. See? Go to the hospital with a bandage. It doesn't have to be over your eye. But with some sign that you got something wrong with you. And the patients tell you things, the your coworkers tell you things they've never told you before because now they know you'll understand. Um, what's his name? Thornton Wilder, beautiful statement. The doctor's refused healing by an angel, and the angel says to the doctor, without your wound, where would your power be? It's your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love, service, only the wounded soldier can serve. Draw back. And on the way home, uh, the doctor realizes the truth of the angel's statement because more doors are popping open as he walks down the street, you know, different houses. Come in here. You know, our son only talks to you. Come in here. My wife needs to talk to you. Come in here. And he realizes it is his woundedness that makes people comfortable talking to him. I, I, I mean, you know, my craziness, you don't mind hearing all my crazy stories, at at the mm-hmm. uh, supermarkets and other stores, you know, when you're checking out, they say, how are you doing today? And my answer is, <laughs> I'm out of my antidepressant, my doctor's on vacation, <laughs> and I can't refill my prescription. And one day my wife said to me, you think that's a joke. They don't. I said, what are you talking about? She said, no. you're not listening it. to people. And then I began to listen, and I couldn't believe how many people were offering me their antidepressants from pocketbooks. Employees would tell me, I've got them in my locker. Come, they may help you. Uh, yeah, the world is wounded, and we need to recognize that and be good to each other, help heal each other. So how does the healer receive the care? You have to ask. I mean, that's part of one of the survival personality questions. Am I able to ask friends and family for help when I need it? And favors when I need them. And the survivors say yes. And another is that's very important. You're asked to do something you don't want to do by a family neighbor, you know, neighbor or friend, what would you tell them? Mm-hmm. The healthy answer is no. Nurses have a hell of a problem with that. I mean, you ask 100 mm-hmm. nurses if what they would do if somebody asked them to do something they didn't want to do. 95 say, I would do it. But it isn't about, you know, saving the world. How about saving yourself? Stop denying yourself mm-hmm. your needs. So healthy people can say no to what they don't want to do and ask for help when they need it. And, you know, there's a list. It's called an immune-competent personality put together by psychiatrist George Solomon uh, when he noticed that certain AIDS patients, when it first broke out, uh, before treatment was available, uh, did much better than others. And he realized it had to do with their personalities. 
There's also an article on my website, which is BernieSiegelMD.com, called Deceiving People in Town. Yeah, it, it's a wonderful website. Yeah, I mean, that it's, again, that our our words have incredible power when they're coming from the authority figure. One of our kids, and I mean, when he was a pipsqueak, came home from school one day with a big canvas. Uh, he wrote the word words on it over and over and over and over, all over it, the canvas. And what does it become? Words, 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 words. I realize they become swords, 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 swords. And so mm-hmm. it, it just occurred to me, you can kill a cure with words or swords. In other words, with a doctor's words or a scalpel. I know mm-hmm. people you know, who have been denied cataract surgery because they had cancer and were going to die in a few months so the health plan didn't want to fix their cataracts and give them their life back. And mm-hmm. the guy went home, died in a week. He just climbed into bed and died. And that that's, again, what we have to understand and look at. You know, there is a will to live. And when you get tired of your body, it's okay. You can turn the switch off. I mean, when you're ready to go, you know, death isn't a failure. As Mother Teresa said, too, she's my teacher, I will not attend an anti-war rally, but if you ever have a peace rally, call me. And that's the point I'm trying to make to people. It isn't about fighting a war, killing your disease, you know, battling. It's about healing your life and body. When you love your life and body, amazing things happen in your body. And when it becomes time to say goodbye to the body... How do people not feel like a failure? Because often our our capacity to heal turns death into failure or weakness yep. into failure or, oh, I just can't do this into failure as opposed to kind of a, a peaceful uh, recognition that it's time to not struggle. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say when it's the battle, then you can hear the word failure. I lost my battle, I failed. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> when mm-hmm. it's really... Well, the only thing of immortality is love, and I mean that. I mean, some of the most wonderful authors have written that. You know, there's land of the living and the land of the dead, and the bridge is love, the only survival, the only meaning, Thornton Wilder. Uh, William Saroyan, the best part of a good man stays forever, for love is immortal and makes all things immortal. And I always say to people, you want to live forever, love somebody. And I mean it. It stays I mean, I've seen this happen on a practical level. You know, when somebody has been loving, how they're still in the life of the people who go on living after they go. They're still playing a role Mm -hmm. because they brought love in. And that, you know, that's what we're here for. And I've seen in our family that when death isn't a failure, then you can die as my father did. I mean, it was an incredible experience. Um, some of it mystical. The day, I mean, he was tired of his body, and he said to my mother, I need to get out of here. So he said, I'll die Sunday. And, you know, we told the family, and everybody was going to gather. The morning before I went to the hospital, a voice said to me when I was out in the street, how did your parents meet? And I mean, literally, I heard a voice ask me that. I said, I don't know. Wow. And the voice said to me, ask your mother when you get to the hospital. Well, I did. I walked in the room, and what pops out of my mouth, not some compassionate, loving statement, but how did you two meet? And my mother started telling stories. And the punchline of how they met was, your father lost a coin toss and had to take me out. Well, everybody started laughing. And my father died laughing. He looked so healthy when he died. I thought he was going to change his mind. You know, I thought he was going to say, you know, this is fun. I'm not going to die today. I'll see you about tomorrow. But the other thing about consciousness, when the last person who had told us they're coming to the hospital to say goodbye walked into the room, he died after that. And you'd say, how did he know who was coming? But we know. That's why I say the love and the consciousness are not local. They spread. They move. So pray for each other. Send the energy. Oh, that's a whole other field. I mean, the energy healers, 
I've had, again, I live by my experience. I've had injuries that have been healed by somebody putting their hands on me. And the heat from her hands were incredible. And five minutes later, I get up and walk away with no pain. So I know that there are amazing things that we are capable of. But you've got to have that quiet mind to be able to use them. To summons it and know it can happen. Oh, Bernie, we shall do this again soon. I very much hope. I thank you so much for your time today. What is your party word? And while you're thinking of that, I want everybody to know that you can get an extension of Bernie at any second of your Internet time on Bernie Siegel, M-D, B-E-R-N-I-E-S-I-E-G-E-L-M-D.com. It is such a great website with, with uh, similar to what you've heard today. So, Bernie, your parting words are what? Well, my parting words are always, we're all going to run out of time, so don't waste your lifetime. Let your heart make up your mind. When you have decisions, let your heart make the decision. Thank you so much, Bernie. Okay, dear. such a gift to me. Thank you. Have a good, good day. And, well, one more parting word. What you see in others resides within you. What you see in others resides within you. Hmm. Yeah. Try that one. I find when people come up and say, oh, what a wonderful talk. I said, it wouldn't seem wonderful if there wasn't something wonderful in you to connect to. You know, it's like when <laughs> if you and I went to a movie, you might like it and I didn't. What's different is what we're seeing in the movie, you know, that's within us. Uh, uh, so thank you, I got Carol. It. Now I understand. Yes, thank you, Bernie. Cheers, everybody. Go live life. It's what you have to live and give. Cheers to all you all.